You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? Giles, I'm very well and I trust all our listeners are enjoying uh, what here in Sydney is uh, fairly humid weather to be sure and uh, I'd like to welcome our special guest today. Yeah, look, thank you. And um, uh, I'd just like to introduce Nikki Eisen from the Institute of Sustainable Futures and the founding director of the Community Power Agency. Nikki, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. It's great to be here. I feel very privileged. Well, look, it's lovely to have you on. A um, bunch of things to talk about this week. I mean, obviously, a few things happening as we're starting to get back into the um, political role um, sort of circle as we're heading towards a state election in New South Wales. And I do want to talk on that. And um, also, of course, the federal election, which we assume to be in May. But you never know, it could be earlier. Um, a couple of things, articles that you guys both wrote this week. I'm going to start off with Nikki's article about the solar coaster. For those who didn't actually get around to reading that article, um, we do hear quite a lot about the huge boom in solar in 2018. Uh, your article was, uh, will we stay on the solar coaster? What was um, what were you what were you telling us in your article, Nikki? Well, basically, there's two schools of thought out there at the moment that I'm hearing. One of them is that uh, while we've been on a roller coaster ride in the renewables industry over the last ten to fifteen years with boom and bust cycles, that actually it's now going to be all smooth sailing. Uh, that renewables are cheaper, um, and you know we've got the momentum, and it's all just going to happen. There are other voices out there that are saying, well, actually, no, we're in the midst of a boom and um, there's a whole bunch of factors, um, both economic and technical, particularly around transmission, that are going to lead to a drop off in the deployment of clean energy in a couple of years time. We're not talking in the next year because we all know that there's you know, a huge amount of renewables already contracted and, and in construction at the moment, but I'm talking about 18 months to two years time. Well, that of course reflects the sort of the um, the uncertainty around the policy um, going going out. I mean, there's certainly going to be enough being built over the next year or two just from the announced um, contracted solar plants that are going to be constructed. So I think the assumption is there's going to be about 10 gigawatts or more um, of large-scale renewables of some sort, and about a half of that's going to be solar built by around 2020, which is going to be over and above what is required from the renewable energy target and. Um, there were some solar farms being formally opened this week at Susan River in Queensland. Childers is just about to be joined. Charles, I think we've moved well beyond the renewable energy target. I mean, I don't know, uh, but I'm working on an assumption that we'll be hitting 50% renewable energy by 2030. And actually, to get to that target, uh, we can slow down the pace of deployment quite easily down to something like about 1.1 gigawatts per year from here of new announcements. Uh, excluding behind the meter, uh, to get to that 50% target. For me, the questions are about uh, firming it up uh, to an extent. Uh, I, I, so, so all I'm saying is we've moved beyond the RET, a long way beyond it. I agree we're moving beyond the RET, but I think there's a question around, certainly Labor has a policy around 50% renewables, but is that good enough? 
you know, actually to meet a 50% renewables target will involve a drop off in the industry and a contraction at a time, you know, when really climate science is saying that we need to be going a lot faster. So where are the policy mechanisms going forward that are going to maintain the current level or certainly not see the level of drop off? Because if all we're headed for is 50% renewables by 2030, then really the industry is going to deliver that, as you said, uh, David, pretty much by itself. So, you know, what is, you know, for me, this is about shifting the goalpost of what is needed um, rather than just comparing what the Liberal Party has versus the Labor Party, um, because what is needed. Well, I think well is I agree different. with that. I, I agree with that as well. But uh, then, as you mentioned, there are these uh, physical constraints, and there's also the fact that isolated grids like Australia. Uh, have yet to demonstrate, uh, like big grids, that they can deal uh, with the high levels of renewable energy, variable renewable energy, and still deliver electricity at a competitive price. You uh, uh, don't get me wrong, I understand the need to, to speed up, but in the end, it is a physical process. Uh, we had a report from the Energy Security Board in late December that pointed out that all of the stage one uh, let alone stage two or stage three of the transmission program, the integrated system plan, uh, each of those three uh, first stage upgrades are running about a year behind schedule and have to be speeded up just to get to there. Um, so I actually think it's there's only a, a certain pace that you can move at unless you assume there's kind of like war conditions. And if you uh, want to go to that level, um, then you're running, going to run into political and also economic difficulties around price. I mean, there's a, there is a cost of moving faster than the industry can actually move. Uh, that's... And I think the question I have is, you know, yes, there's certainly constraints around transmission, but how much more would it cost to go quicker? You know, we can do more to speed up the, the transmission timelines. You know, certainly the pace that um, AMC has put forward you know, is being, uh, I think people in the industry are certainly fairly frustrated about that. Um, certainly they are in the climate movement. Um, so, you know, what can we do to speed things up? You know, comp and I'm not necessarily saying that we have to keep the current build rate, though I think that that would be excellent. That would certainly get us on the pathway from a climate perspective. But what would it take? You know, and I think, and that transmission questions, and I think those cost questions need to be answered. And I don't think we're asking the right questions at the moment to be able to answer them. Well, this is the point that I guess uh, people, a lot of people have been making, including I must say myself for more than two years, that it doesn't take any time really to build a wind or a solar plant. Like you can have a wind farm up and running in two years. You can have a solar farm up and running uh, in under 18 months. Uh, um, uh, so that's not the issue. You can build as many of those that you need. It's the other bits that are the issue. It's the economics of the remaining dispatchable generations. Uh, it is the length of time it takes to get something like, say, Snowy Hydro up and uh, two Snowy Two up and running, or any form of these pumped hydros. So we still don't have a, a, a price signal, you could argue, uh, right now for any form of dispatchable energy. It's the fact that building transmission typically takes seven years from the time you first think of it to the time it actually starts transmitting the electricity. So, David, if the ISP is running a year behind, what's the cause of that and how do we speed it up? 
Well, the ESB claims that they can speed it up uh, with the uh, policy mechanisms that they're proposing, which basically the, it, you have to do this RIT test, which is proving that the transmission is in the to the benefit of the consumers in both states. So say you want to build a transmission line from South Australia to New South Wales, uh, the Riverlink connector, you have to prove that consumers in both states are going to be better off. And at the same time, you can't undertake the detailed uh, engineering procurement, uh, what we might call the front end engineering and design, until you, because that costs dollars, until you're sure you're going to get regulatory approval. So what uh, the ESB is proposing is, is to try and combine those two things. And essentially what it's going to involve is the ESB getting more, uh, well, AEMO getting more control of the transmission process uh, and essentially saying we are going to build this unless someone can prove it we shouldn't build it. <laughs> That's more or less what's going to happen. And so you can get on with uh, uh, the financing of it and the detailed design right now. So is that going to happen? What, what needs for, for, for that process to be put in place? What needs to happen? Approval at COAG Energy Meeting sometime soon? You know what, Giles, I need to go back. December was already a long time ago. I need to go back and reread exactly what the ESB is proposing there. But my point, and it's to Nikki's point, is that we need to speed this stuff up. Uh, this is the trouble. Transmission building, to the extent you need transmission, there's always a debate about how much transmission you need or, you know, that half the people who listen to this podcast are going to be yelling and screaming that you don't need any transmission. It can all be done by just building more solar farms next, next to, say, an aluminium smelter. I, I'm not one of those people. I think we need more transmission. Uh, so we just have to get on with doing it. It's why, you know, we, we interviewed the guy from Texas before Christmas to ask how they were able to do it successfully. Where was the political will? to actually get it done and get, you know, the transmission needs to come. You have to build the foundations and the skeleton first before you start tacking on all the body parts. Mm. Uh, can I just jump in? I think there's a few elements that we need. Um, one of them is definitely transmission. Uh, I think there's another, uh, rightly, you were saying earlier around dispatchables. Um, you know, more storage, more pumped hydro. I think there's a piece around demand response that is needed, and I think that there's also a piece around load shifting. Um, you know, what would it take for us to move our uh, off peak hot water from overnight into the middle of the day? You know, those are the types of things that you know, if we could sort them in the next eighteen months, could help maintain the type of um, you know renewables build that we're seeing at the moment. Um, and I just don't know if. You know, we have the political will or, um, you know, the processes in place to, to deliver all of them. I'm heartened by the support that the um, demand response rule change seems to be getting from some key industry players. So that that's good. Maybe we'll get some shifts there. But, um, you know, it feels it feels slow and it certainly feels like the political conversations are not the right conversations at the moment. And, and I, I agree with that. I better let Giles. No, no, no. You go ahead. No, He's you good. go ahead, David. No, you'll blow up in a second, Giles, if you don't start talking. Um, uh, but I just want to say that progress doesn't happen in a straight line. History indicates in so many areas that sometimes you seem to be battling away and not getting anywhere, uh, when really there is underlying progress. I mean, we are Australia has made a lot of progress and will make a lot more. Really, the thing that Australia could do most, if it, all it was interested in was global climate change, would be to do something about uh, uh, 
coal exports and putting pressure on the coal price that way. But that is never going to be happen. There is only a certain amount of political will and political capital that can be expended at any one time. About 70% of people support doing something more uh, for, for climate change, but that's still 30% of the people that don't support it. And you can only move that 70, you can only move the people along at a certain pace. That's, of course, we should be pushing as hard as we can. And, and of course, we're not going fast enough to slow down global warming. I mean, that's been obvious for ages, but uh, we also have to remember that Australia has to operate in the global economy we need an electricity system that can, I mean, only one third of electricity goes to households, two thirds go to business and about 40% goes to export oriented businesses that just have to sell their products against everyone else in the world. We can't move too far. We can move in advance of the world. We can set a good example. We can decarbonise the electricity system here in Australia and we can end up with a competitive global electricity price, but we can't do it in a way that kills business uh, uh, so that we don't even need the bloody electricity. Interesting stuff, David. Nikki, with the Labour Party more likely or favoured under current polls to get into um, power come the what we're assuming is the May election, do you see the political will and the political motivation to get some of those things in place that you're talking about that would be needed? Um, you know, David's commented that um, 50% target doesn't really look that ambitious now if we look at the rate of wind and solar um, deployments um, that are currently planned. Um, and his argument is that you probably need more of this infrastructure and more of this sort of backstopping before you go any further than 50%. Um, how quick... What do you expect the Labor to do? I mean, do you expect yeah. them to sort of start moving quickly? Um, I think they're going to do some things quickly and some things not so much. So, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, you know, certainly I would expect them to do more on the transmission side of things. They've, they've announced this transmission uh, infrastructure fund. I hope it will be useful. Um, that that's something that remains to be seen. Um, so that's the first thing. Certainly their big announcement around renewable hydrogen recently was um, welcome and I think recognises the role that Australia can play, not only you know, shifting our global coal exports to global renewables exports, so you know, shifting from being a net um, terrible contributor to climate change to a net positive contributor to the, uh, the climate solution. So I, I think the, those are two areas that um, are heartening. I also think that they will do more on energy efficiency, which is good because that is something that there hasn't um, been a lot of political will to do things around. I think they're also interested in energy market reform and backing in AMO and what AMO is trying to do. Um, I, and so the, those things are heartening to me. I am concerned, significantly concerned, about uh, what they will do around dispatchables. Um, I think that that hasn't been well enough thought through. I am also concerned about what um, they might do in terms of scaling up their target, because certainly a 45% uh, emissions reduction target, the cheapest way to achieve it is uh, by 2030 is to dramatically upscale renewables and have the electricity sector do the heavy lifting but they haven't seemed willing to come out before this election and say that you know they're going to do that um and if um we would need to see that happen 
you know, pretty shortly after the election, if they were to, you know, put in place the types of things that would actually mean that we could easily get beyond 50% by 2030. And Charles, it's also worth pointing out that it's only partly a federal government job. There's a big role for states in electricity. Uh, we spoke on this podcast last week about waiting to hear what the New South Wales Labor Party is actually going to announce as its policy. Uh, and secondly, I would note on the federal side of things that, that you have to be able to get your policy through the Senate. Uh, it's difficult to get stuff through the Senate. So we heard Mark Butler uh, talk about the idea of using the CEFC to fund reverse auctions. But someone else pointed out to me that those, uh, if those auctions happen to result in losses, that will, that will be on the federal budget. Uh, so that and have to be financed and go into the forward estimates. So there's a, quite a few <laughs> details. It's not easy. Absolutely. Uh, can yeah, I just jump in on that, that getting it through the Senate? The most critical person in the Senate in the next term of government is going to be Rex Patrick in the Centre Alliance. He is the energy spokesperson for the Centre Alliance and you know, he will be required to get through any um, legislation around, around this. I think he can be shifted, but I think um, work needs to be done. Yes, I, I presented to him. And what are your and, and what and, and what are your um what, what what's your impression of um, him, David? Um, certainly, he's dissenting or is rather fr frustrated um, contribution to the EV inquiry last week. Um, sort of um, certainly suggests someone who sort of understands the issues and and, and, and wants to move ahead. Um, for those who didn't see the result of that EV inquiry, basically they agreed that um, we should accelerate the transition to EVs because of environmental and economic reasons and um, engineering reasons as well. But none of the major parties could actually support any specific targets or specific measures and say let's have a plan and let's have another study to have a plan even though they just had a study and that was pretty frustrating to the independent sen Senator Tim Storer and, um, and also Rex Patrick um, who wanted some um to actually sort of lay down some targets you know even just as senate recommendations but um i'm i'm i'm, I'm interested to hear more about more about him because i don't really know who he is well he, he he asks a lot of questions and he's interested in the topic and i guess you can't take more than that but you know he represents a state south australia so uh where where so if you if you could make it look good for south australia <laughs> but uh, the point is electricity prices have been higher in south australia which has a higher share of variable renewable energy than in other states so the first thing you have to do is to is to is to prove to him that uh, lifting the share of renewables isn't going to result in higher prices it's going to result in lower prices and you know we know that it's because of the control of the gas industry in South Australia that you have that, uh, that, that issue, but the work, that's where the work needs to be done. It's not done by just uh, simply saying something, it's done by showing a business case and demonstrating how the numbers are going to work out for the benefit of consumers all over the place, but in South Australia, and for the benefit of business. I mean, they've got a big back. Um, battery menu assembly issue uh, going now in South Australia and so there are, there are local jobs.
Yeah, that's great, Nikki. I'm just fascinated by the um, the what, what you're saying about the Senate. So, um, what's the make, what's the what's the, what's the potential makeup going to be? I mean, I would have thought it'd been a bit early to actually get sort of numbers on that. But presumably, what you're seeing is Labor and the Greens falling short of a majority, but having someone like Pat, Rex Patrick to um, to get them over the line. Yeah. So the analysis done by Ben Rowie at the Tally Room and uh, someone else. Um, I- forgetting him, mental blank on his name, sort of there's sort of three scenarios but they're within a, a seat or two each way that, you know, you've got Labor and the Greens not getting enough for a majority, then you've got most likely um, these centre candidates. One of the, and then you've got, uh, you know, the Liberal National Party and then a bunch of right-wing, more right-wing extreme uh, parties. Uh, and it's really about who's up for re-election. Um, and most of the centre parties are not, and the candidates in the centre party are not up for re-election this term of the Senate. Uh, so they are there regardless. Rick Patrick is there for a six-year term. Uh, so it, it, it looks, from the, the current numbers, it looks practically impossible for Labor and the Greens to you know, win a Senate majority outright. Um, so given we know that those centre party senators are going to continue to be there, that makes the most sense and makes them for potential kingmakers. But also, of course, it may be possible to do an end run round the Senate to an extent. Oh, by, yeah, by absolutely. The There's certainly a lot of things that a government can do of their own volition. You know, that's one of the things that's keeping me up at night around the current coal underwriting. You know, how much can they get away with, the current government get away with before the election before without taking anything to Parliament or the Senate? Um, so there's stuff that can be done, but you know, it would be good to be able to do things that involve legislation. Um, and if that's the case, you know, we'll need to see um, the Centre Alliance get on board. And I think, they're, I think they're interested. I don't think that they're going to be massive blockers, but how ambitious and how fast they will want to see this energy transition go um, is, is a big question. I do think building a consensus on the issue, bringing the uh, 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 both ends of the spectrum closer to the centre uh, is always going to be the best way for Australia to forge ahead. Let's have a look at quick New South Wales. Um, David mentioned that um, that election is actually coming up in, God, what is it, must be five or six weeks away. We still haven't heard the energy policies of either major party yet. A um, bit disappointing. Um, many of the environmental and green groups last week came out and said that they wanted quite an ambitious target from both. Um, ironically, um, because of their ageing coal generation fleet, New South Wales is predicted by AEMO as likely to have the quickest transition of all, simply because those coal plants will need to be replaced, and you might you might as well replace them with wind and solar and some forms of storage. But um, I guess it's going to need some carefully calibrated policies by um, either of the major parties. Yeah. Um... Uh, again, again, I'm hand over in just a second. But again, transmission is a big deal. New South Wales is a net importer of electricity. Uh, and um, we're going to suffer if we don't have enough transmission from the other states. Queensland is a net exporter. Uh, we saw as recently as yesterday, prices in New South Wales been higher than they needed to be uh, because of uh, transmission constraints down at uh, and Quinty in the Snowy Line. Uh, the New South Wales uh, government has produced its own evidence to show that whenever those transmission constraints are binding, New South Wales consumers end up paying. Uh, that's all I want to say.
<laughs> uh, so I was involved in the, um, drafting those policies for a bunch of those uh, environment organisations that you mentioned, Giles. Um, and I think that what has been very disappointing in the last four, four or five years is how little the New South Wales government has done on this topic. You know, they came out in 2016 with a, a plan, a strategic plan for the Climate Change Fund, and then they basically, as soon as Gladys Berejiklian came in and Mike Baird left the premiership, um, being his role as premier, we saw an about face and nothing being said on energy and climate until you know, about August, September last year. And what we've seen to date are just you know, a range of small policies that you know, will make an impact, but are certainly not commensurate with the scale of the challenges that are facing New South Wales. So what we're seeing that the, these environment organisations push for is you know, some, some big renewables in terms of reverse auctions for re renewables and dispatchables. Um, we're suggesting 4,000 megawatts in the next term of government, so 1,000 megawatts a year. Um, that would you get you to a point where not only would Liddell be able to, you know, Liddell is going to shut, but you would also get probably enough capacities such that um, if Fails Point were to need to shut earlier due to any issues, you wouldn't be left um, in the lurch. Uh, then there's the issue of um, rooftop solar. Certainly we saw in the Victorian election, you know, huge rooftop solar commitment from the Andrews government that was very politically popular, though, you know, had a few, you know, scratch, few people in the industry scratching their heads. So one idea that we've come up with is the idea that you should target that rooftop solar to those people who currently can't access it. So people who rent, people who live in apartments, people who just don't have the, the finances to be able to currently uh, pay for the solar up front. So um, we're calling it the solar for all rebate. Um, and that, you know, I think has some potential, particularly because there are a million households in New South Wales that are currently locked out um, of, of rooftop solar. Uh, and my organisation, Community Power Agency, has just done some work in the last year with some funding from ARENA and with uh, the University of Technology Sydney looking at solar gardens, which is a model that works in the US that really could help uh, level the playing field and, and provide access to, to clean energy for those locked out. And that's about sort of using sort of, you know, sort of community-based sort of solar plants to actually sort of people can sort of share the energy, sort of share in the benefits of that solar. Um, that's a terrific idea. And I also really support the stuff with low-income households because I can't for the life of me understand why you would actually do an additional solar rebate for households up to 180,000, um, which seems to be this magic number in the southern states. The South Australian government used it and the Victorian government used it. And I just think it was a shame that they missed the opportunity to actually have the um, the focus put on exactly, as you say, the people who largely missed out and who need the help most, which is the low income households and people who can otherwise not obtain rooftop solar. Yeah. That's also the number for the federal government uh, battery program. Ah, there you go. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, hey, look, listen, just a couple of quick things before we wrap up. Um, David, I just want to draw attention to listeners from your analysis of wholesale prices. Now, a lot of been, lots been written about wholesale price movements. I was fascinated by, fascinated by your analysis because it showed that the... The generators that have gotten the most money recently have actually been the hydro generators, which has got a, um, as far as I understand it, pretty much a zero cost of fuel. What's going on there, David? Is this a sort of outrageous gaming in the market by the government retailer, or is this simply because the hydro is being used as one of the, um, 
you know, the generation of last resorts and then um, helping meet peak demand? Well, I think it's probably uh, a little bit of both. Hydro and gas have uh, pricing power. Uh, they, they need to make their returns when uh, prices are high. They won't be high necessarily all year long, I don't think, but they are high this January. The reason why prices were high was in the end, the brown coal uh, generation output in January this year was less than January last year, but demand was higher. So this is the first point to make. If we hadn't had the wind and solar, uh, uh, both the solar in front and behind the meter, if they hadn't stepped up and increased their output, uh, prices would have been even worse and blackouts might have been even more likely, load shedding. Um, we, we, we don't have much numbers on demand response because the data on that is still very skinny. And of course, gas and uh, hydro come along at the very end and uh, they bid. Now, hydro resources are limited. I haven't looked at the dam levels lately, but we don't have an infinite uh, capacity in the dams at the moment. Uh, so it's not unreasonable that they charge high prices. And the basic point I make in the article is that uh, consumers and the industry shouldn't be scared of high prices. They, they High prices, and I, this is a hard point to accept, but the high prices are what makes the market work. Either you believe in markets or you don't believe in markets. If you want to run the system entirely by the government, then don't have a market at all. If you're going to have a market, you have to accept high prices and the fact that they will induce new supply and provide the signal to build the pumped hydro or the gas plant or whatever it is that will eventually make prices lower. Yeah, I, I, understand, I understand the reasoning for that. I guess one of the problems with the consumers is they've probably been told that for a few years now and keep on being told that, you know, high prices are needed for more investment and that high prices will not but, be But we've long got term. the more investment, Giles. All this new investment is coming through only partly because of the REC scheme, but partly because of the high prices in the pool market. And the reason why prices are high is because the prices were low, because prices were low before. So we had the closure of Rolirawang, we had the closure of the Northern Power Station, we had uh, uh, closure of Tarong in Queensland for a couple of years, we had the closure of Hazelwood. That was because prices were so low and we were in oversupply. And then we closed too much too quickly, which is always going to be the case with coal generators because they're so lumpy. And this has made prices go up. All of us in the renewable energy industry, which and it encourages energy efficiency and demand response. That only works when it gets the right price signal. All of us who believe in climate change reduction should welcome high electricity prices, as hard a message as that is to, to take on board as, as it is. As long I, but as I think it there's, delivers. A, there's a difference, and this is where it's useful to distinguish, there's a difference between high electricity prices and high bills. We should be supporting low bills and working you know, on the demand side to really minimise the impact for those who are most vulnerable. Um, because you know, electricity prices or ele high electricity bills do hurt people, but certainly you know, we do need more supply. You know, there is a supply demand, uh, you know, small gap between just supply and demand at the moment. We need more. Um, and so I, you know, I agree with David on that front, but I think we shouldn't be leaving consumers in the, the lurch in that um, on that point, and we should be, you know, working to lower bills and lower emissions at the same time, and so more focus on energy efficiency and demand response, I think, is needed. You know, I think that's true, actually, and it's kind of an intractable problem, and um, and, and and particularly in the politics of the moment. And I remember being at um, a clean energy summit. I can't remember whether it was a year or two now or two years ago, and hearing renewable energy developers and proponents of the transition talking about this and etc. Um, etc. Et and I just was, and I actually put up my hand and sort of said, "Well, how 
confident can we but that this will actually translate into lower bills for people and sort of people started to sort of look at the shoes and sort of scuffle their feet in the same way as um, some of the uh, people involved in the um, in the um, emissions reduction scheme, sort of when you, when you ask them about the uh, longevity of their emissions reduction. This was so, so, Charles, we're running out of time. Uh, I, I would just point out that as far as household bills go, 50% of it broadly is in the distribution and transmission cost, of which transmission is about 10%. Houses in Australia, historically, we've chosen to live in detached houses that, are, that require long distribution networks. Uh, we pay, the Queenslanders in, pay about 250 million a year to supply electricity to regional Queensland. You know, city people support it. If you want to have the lifestyle that people in Australia have traditionally wanted, then you're going to have high wires and poles costs and uh, it doesn't really matter in a sense what you do on generation, you're going to be stuck with those costs. Uh, yes and no. I think there's certainly, uh, you know, rooftop solar does lower your bills as well. So that's something you know, that we were talking no, about no, before. No, it doesn't. It, it, it lowers your bills, but the, but the network still has to be paid for. The wires yeah. and poles still, ha still have to, if you put less electricity for them, the unit cost goes up. And I think the saviour of all of that here is around, you know, electrification of transport and electrification of industry. You know, actually, we do need more investment in our networks, as we've just heard, um, you know, transmission particularly. Um, you know, that will have a bill impact and a price impact unless we can also simultaneously increase demand. Um, and I think, so I think that there's you know, a whole range of factors that, you know, come into play that, you know, will head it, put it, point it in the right direction and can lower, the, lower our bills. I agree with that, Nikki. More, more demand is the answer to lowering the unit cost. Um, well, but we also we... will want to decrease demand through energy efficiency because that will also lower, help people lower bills. So, you know, it's, it's, not a straightforward story. It, there's a few. You can imagine how the average punter gets very confused. Yes, absolutely. And um, on that demand, let's hope that someone comes up with some decent electric vehicle policy and um, also on electrification um, here, here. of um, of industry. Absolutely. Look, one final thing before we yeah, um, one final thing before we go. Um, in looking week ahead. We're starting to see some of the big utilities coming out with profits over the next month. Um, this Thursday, we have AGL. David, very briefly, what can we expect to learn from this and other results? Well, I, I think the numbers themselves will be up a little bit on last year. Uh, uh, but I really look to see what new CEO Brett Redman has to say about where he wants to position AGL going forward. Okay, well, we look forward with that in interest. And um, before I say thank you to Nikki Eisen for joining us, I'd just like to acknowledge our sponsors, Watt Watchers and Solaray Energy, who have both been with us for more than a year now and have supported this podcast. So we thank them and we encourage all our listeners to use their products. Nikki, thanks for joining us. Fantastic conversation um, between the three of us. And um, good luck with your work both at the Community Power Agency and um, also at the Institute for Sustain Sustainable Futures. Sorry, that didn't need to be such a mouthful, but there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Giles. I had a lot of fun. Really enjoyed the conversation. Cheers. Good stuff. And thank you very much. Um, thank you, David. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. 
Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.